Uh, I am not Jade, and his name is Mephibosheth in my world. And <laughs> I don't know what you called him in your community groups, but that's what I'm going with today. <laughs> so thanks for that, Jade. Uh, let me pray, and then let's jump in. Father, as we open your word, we need your help. Uh, today, would you show us more of who you are? We pray that you would do that by your spirit, through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start by asking you all a question. It'll come up on the screen. What is the thing that you are most likely to forget as a Christian? What is the thing you are most likely to forget as a Christian? I think it's worth thinking about this because I think there's one thing that is both the thing that we are most likely to forget about but also that if we do forget about it, the thing that is most dangerous to our faith. And so actually, take, just take 20 seconds with the people around you. What do you think it is? What is the one thing that you are most likely to forget as a Christian? Just take 20 seconds. Okay, that'll do. As I, as I look around a room like this and a church like ours, uh, what I see from many of us is a group of people who have worked hard, uh, people who have achieved and been rewarded for what they have done in life. That's how our world works, isn't it? It's how religion works as well. Uh, in Buddhism, you've got the Eightfold Path. In Hinduism, you've got the doctrine of karma. Uh, in Judaism, you've got the commandments. In Islam, you've got the five pillars, each of them offering a way for us to work and to earn the approval of God. But Christianity, true Christianity, is radically different to all of that. It goes against every instinct, instinct that we have in humanity and of religion. There's this uh, story of um, a conference where a group of scholars got together and they were debating world religions and trying to figure out what was the difference between the different religions. Uh, and as they were, they were talking about uh, Christianity, C.S. Lewis walks into the room and asks, what are you guys talking about? And they explain to him, well, we're discussing what is um, distinct to Christianity from all the other religions. And his answer was, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Now, what is grace? Well, it's not what you say before dinner. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's the opposite of achievement, the opposite of working towards something. It's the free gift of God that brings about our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or to deserve it or to work towards it. It's the gift of God's grace. And so you get verses like these, Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 24. It says, we are justified, that is made right in God's sight by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Well, that first song, uh, the first, first verse of that beautiful song, Amazing Grace, 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And it's God's grace that can look so big in our lives when we first become Christians. How precious is, uh, was that grace when it first appeared. Uh, but as uh, we see the depth of our sin and our rebellion against God, and then we see the heights of God's love for us and all that God has done for us in spite of our sin, that we see God's grace and we see that Jesus came, he died for us to cleanse us of our sin. We see God's grace in its fullness. And what's meant to happen over the Christian life as you continue to go on in the Christian life is you are to see God's grace more clearly as you see your sin more fully and then the heights of God's love the cross gets bigger, God's grace gets bigger in our lives. But I fear that for many of us, the opposite is happening. That we start to minimize our sin. And therefore our need for God's grace. And so the cross of Christ becomes smaller to us over time. We start to rely on ourselves and our own merits rather than on God and his grace. Grace City, our biggest danger is to forget the gospel of God's grace and think that somehow that we can earn God's favor and his love. And that's why I love this passage that we're going to look at today so much. Because what it shows us is a picture of God's grace. It's a reminder to us to keep coming back to God's grace, to not think that we could earn it somehow. Now, as we've been working our way through 2 Samuel, what we've been seeing is that King David is a shadow that points us forward to the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we see David's character when he's at his best, what we see is the character of our Lord. And so today, as we look at this passage I want us to be reminded of and to rejoice in God's grace as we see it here in this passage. His unmerited favor towards us that he has shown us for all of us whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just before we jump in, uh, and we'll have a look at that passage in a minute, but let me give you some context of where we've been so far in in 2 Samuel. So back in chapter 5, David has become king over all of Israel. It's been coming all the way since the start of 1 Samuel, been working towards this moment. Uh, In chapter 7, which we looked at last week with Charlie, uh, God promises uh, that David's family would rule on the throne forever and that God's love would never be taken away from him. Uh, In chapter 8, if you've read uh, through to that, what happens there is uh, God uh, has given David peace from all his enemies. Uh, There's all these huge moments that have been uh, coming in the rise of King David. If you were to plot them out on the rise and the fall of King David, these events have really been leading up to the climax of the rise of his kingship. Now, chapter 8 ends like this. It says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. And so things are going great for Israel, and their king is ruling the way that he should. And chapter 9, which we're looking at today, I think has been deliberately placed where it is in 2 Samuel, right here at the height of David's reign, to show us what this king is meant to look like. What we see is the character of the king. 
We get, we get a glimpse into his heart. This is the man who's been profoundly changed and affected by how God has treated him. God has taken him from the field as a shepherd boy to now king ruling over God's people. In fact, what do you notice if you're reading carefully through the story up until this point is that here in chapter 9, we see the first words out of the mouth of David since he responded to God's promises back in chapter 7. This is the first thing that we hear out of his mouth since then. And so let's jump in. Let's have a look at what happens. It'd be good to have a Bible open in front of you, as always. Now, today's going to be really simple. All we're going to do is we're just going to work our way through the passage and point some stuff out as we go. So have your Bibles open and let's jump in. Okay, verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? As in, is there anyone left in his family that's still alive? Now, on first reading, you might be wondering, why is David asking this question? Is it to eliminate his rivals? Because that's what kings did. When a new king took the throne, he would eliminate the, the family of the old king uh, to get rid of anyone who could challenge his rule. And 2 Samuel began with the death of King Saul and then his son, son Jonathan. A couple of chapters later in chapter 2, verse 31, it says that 360 of uh, David's, uh, sorry, of Saul's family have been killed in the battle of Gibeon. Uh, and then in chapter 7, Saul's last surviving son and the king of the time, Ishbosheth, is killed. Now it's, it's clear as you read through uh, that David has had nothing to do with any of these murders, as um, Brooke said in the video, if you picked up on that before. Um, and so the question that he's asking here isn't so he can eliminate anyone left in Saul's family. It's asking because it's going to show something about his heart because he continues. He says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's not to kill, but to show kindness for the sake of Jonathan. Now, David and Jonathan go way back. They have a history. Uh, they were best friends, even though Jonathan was Saul's son uh, and heir to the throne. Uh, he gave all that up as he acknowledged David was God's true king. Uh, now, his father, King Saul, was David's mortal enemy, and he had uh, sought to kill him on a number of occasions. Uh, but Jonathan had protected David, even when it uh, came at risk to his own life. And during one of those times... Uh, David, uh, when David and Jonathan were together, they made a covenant. And you see this back in 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, as Jonathan was risking his life to protect David, they made this covenant. He said, But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Basically, the covenant that they, they make here together is that David would not sh stop showing kindness to Jonathan and his family, even when David becomes king. And so David now remembers this covenant that he has made and seeks to see if there's anyone left from that family to whom he can show this kindness. The kindness because of this covenant that he'd made with Jonathan. Well, there is a guy. 
who might know. His name is Ziba. Uh, he was a servant of King Saul. And so David summons him. And you see that in verse 3. He has a question for him. He says, Is there any, uh, no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Now, we know David's motives. His motives aren't to kill, they're to show kindness. But it's pretty likely that Zeba's not convinced of this. He probably thinks David wants to, to kill anyone left in Saul's family. But he has little option here but to answer the question. And so he answers it, there is still a son of Jonathan. Now, this must have caused all sorts of emotions to start welling up in David. His dear friend the one whom he loved so much, who was now dead, but he has a son who's alive. But then Ziba adds a little bit more information. He says he is lame in both feet. Now, why he adds this information, we're not told. But notice it's the only extra piece of information that he's told. He's not given his name, or any details about his family or anything like that, just that he is lame in both feet. Now again, if you've been reading from the start of 2 Samuel, you'd remember that it's already been recounted how this young man became lame in the first place. Back in chapter 4, it had told us about this. So chapter 4, four verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, sorry, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's the news of their death. Uh, his nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he, fe uh, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. For this small boy, five years old, the day that his father and his grandfather died was also the day that he became lame, disabled. And so it was a constant reminder to him of all that had happened. Now, it's likely that Ziba adds this information with the intention to suggest that he's not a threat to the king. As in, look, there is someone still left in the family line of Saul, but you don't need to worry about him. He's lame. He, he's no threat to you. But David wants more information. And so he asks Ziba where he is. Verse 4, well, he's in the house of Micah, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now, what we find out from this is that he has, he's homeless. He's living in someone else's home. He's probably been taken care of by this guy. Uh, and he, he lives in a town named Lodabar. Now, as you read the commentaries, no one seems to know where this place was. Uh, in the Hebrew, it actually it translates to something like no place. And so... Zeba's saying to the king, look, there is one person left from the house of Saul, Jonathan's son, but he's homeless, he's poor, he's crippled, he's a no one from nowhere. Again, we're left wondering about Zeba's motives in all of this. Later on in the book, as we keep reading, we'll find out that he, he's not actually quite telling the truth. There's other members of Saul's family that are still alive and there's also the question of, well, why isn't Ziba looking after Mephibosheth? He's, he's the servant of Saul's family. Wouldn't that have been his responsibility? But we get no answers to those questions. 
Instead, the attention now turns from Ziba to this son of Jonathan. And David brings him from Lodabar to Jerusalem. Now put yourself in this guy's situation for a second. You're the grandson of the former king. And the new king finds where you are and orders for you to be brought to him. What do you think is going to happen? I think it would be right to assume the worst, wouldn't it? You have, you have no idea of the covenant that your father had made with Jonathan. That happened before he was even born. I think you would assume that David's going to kill him. It must have been a fearful journey for him on those days to get to Jerusalem. Well, what happens? Well, verse 6, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down and paid him honor. Exactly what you would do in that situation. As Mephibosheth appears before the king, he bows down. It's literally he falls on his, fa- on his face and worships. Probably thinking never to get back up. Trembling with fear for his life. Moreover, he's crippled. And so to, to bend down like that would have been very painful. Now, something you notice here, if you're reading carefully, is the language in this scene changes. On either sides of this section, he's talking with Zeba. And there the language that's used is of King or King David. But here, as he talks with Mephibosheth, he's simply called David. It's like the narrator, as he's recounting this scene, is trying to express the warmth of the way David is speaking here with Mephibosheth. And what happens next is the opposite of what he would have expected. Verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now these words of comfort must have come as great surprise to Mephibosheth, wouldn't they? I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father. Now, this is the third time that these, this word has been used, this kindness word. And I think it's much more than just some random act of kindness. We saw it back in verse 1 uh, at the start where we read of David's desire to show kindness for Jonathan's sake because of the covenant that they'd made. Or we saw it in verse 3 where David there speaks about it as God's kindness. He wants to show God's kindness, the kindness that he had received from God. And then again now in in verse 7, David speaks again for a third time of the kindness for the sake of your father. Now, I don't think it's an exaggeration here uh, to say that this word is the key to understanding this whole chapter. Uh, Because behind this word that's translated here, kindness, is the Hebrew word hased. Now, I'm probably not saying that right, Jade. You probably know how to say it better. But if there was just one Hebrew word that you should know, it's the word hased. Now, what does it mean? Well, there is no English word that can uh, do it justice. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. Uh, Here it's translated kindness, but in other passages it's translated as love or mercy or sometimes faithfulness. Uh, You get closer to it. 
uh, when you put two words together. If one word's not enough, add an, add an extra word. So things like steadfast love or loving kindness or covenant love. You're starting to see a bit more of what it is. Usually, as it's spoken of, it's spoken in terms of a relationship. It's like between David and Jonathan. So remember back to the covenant that David made with Jonathan back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. We looked at it before. It's the same word there. But show me unfailing said, like the Lord's said, as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your said from my family. Or in last week's passage, um, in, sorry, it is that one, uh, in chapter 7, uh, when God promises to never take his love from David, the word translated there for love is the Hased language again. Moreover, God describes himself in this way, in that most famous passage in Exodus 34, verse 6, where uh, God tells Moses who he is. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in hased and faithfulness. God's character, who he is, is abounding in hased. Do you start to see what this word means? That's the type of kindness that David is going to show to Mephibosheth. What Mephibosheth was expecting was wrath. What he got was Hesed, the kindness of the king. And if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is true of you as well. That you were an enemy of God, deserving of his wrath, but what God gives you is his Hesed, his kindness, for the sake of Jesus. That's what grace is. His undeserved has said. Okay. Well, what did this kindness, this has said, look like for Mephibosheth? Well, it's expressed in two gifts. You see them in verse 7. David says, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So firstly... Uh, He restores to him all the land that belonged to his family line. Uh, He was a lame no one from nowhere who had now received his estate back. And now in that culture, uh, land was inheritance. It was future. It was your security. But secondly, and most extraordinarily, what David says to him is, you will always eat at my table. Now, this is much more than just food. I'm sure the food was really good, but this is much more than just getting to eat food. Uh, To eat at the king's table was a special privilege and signified the king's favor, the king's blessing. And just in case you missed it, the narrator uh, says it four times in these verses. Did you notice that? And so verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. To eat at the king's table was to be adopted into his family, to have the same privileges and rights as his own children. What David does is make his enemy his son. What an amazing act of God's grace. 
Paul the Apostle, the Apostle of God's grace, says it this way in Romans 5, verse 10. He says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Everything's upside down in God's kingdom. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. And if you remember back to last year when we were in 1 Samuel, right at the start when Hannah, who was the mum of Samuel, who became the prophet, she prays this and says this about God. She says, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. That's Mephibosheth. He was raised up from the dust, poor and lame, and he's seated at the king's table in honor as a son. An enemy is now a son. Well, then we are given Mephibosheth's response to this most gracious act of kindness. You see it in verse 8. Have a look. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? This is the guy who knew his place. From the age of five, he was an orphan, lame, no hope, no land, no future. And yet in this most remarkable turnaround of events, as David showers him with this unmerited kindness and blessing, everything in his life changes. And so for a second time, he falls at the king's feet. But this time it's not in fear. This time it's in awe at the undeserving kindness of the king. And so is that your response to God's grace in your life? Or have you forgotten about it? Then there's a second reversal that happens because our attention now turns back from Mephibosheth to Ziba and in the language as well, back from David to the king. So have a look at verse 9. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Now there was already a hint at the start that there was something not quite right about Ziba. Here now we find out he's not just a servant in, the, in Saul's household. He's the steward of, of Saul's whole estate. He's the one who should have been looking after his grandson. And so David instructs Ziba to do for Mephibosheth what he should have already been doing. And so, so verse 10, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land, not for yourselves, but for him. And to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. Massive turnaround of events, isn't it? And so it finishes with the conclusion in verse 13. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He no longer feared the king and needed to hide from him. But now he ate at the king's table. He no longer had to fear him as an orphan, but he was now a son. Grace City, if your trust is in Jesus, this is what he's done for you. 
That is what his grace has done. He has adopted you into his family and you are a child of the king and you will eat at his table forever. But just before we finish up, did you notice there's one last thing that's said right at the end? Maybe in your community group you picked up on this during the week. Because look how the story ends in verse 13. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Just in case we forgot. We're reminded again that he's lame. It's now the third time we've been told about this in 2 Samuel. It seems so unnecessary. Just to like getting while he's down. I don't know. what. And I spent the week wondering why. Why does the narrator put this here right at the end again? And then I remembered back to chapter 5, verse 8. Remember that saying that had been developed that said, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace? Remember that? I wonder if the narrator chooses to finish this way to remind us that it was not because of Mephibosheth that he could now enter the palace and eat at the king's table. In Mephibosheth's own words, he was a dead dog. There was nothing that he had to offer the king. He had no right to enter the palace and sit at the king's table. The only reason he got to do that was because of the, for the sake of someone else. David chose to show him kindness for the sake of someone else. As you read this passage, you are not David showing kindness to some poor lame person. You are Mephibosheth. I am Mephibosheth, spiritually lame and poor, an enemy of the king with no right to sit at his table. But the gospel message is that the true king, the one from which David pointed to, has poured out his grace, his hased on us for the sake of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And so, Grace City, be careful not to forget the grace of God that has been shown to you in Jesus. Don't ever take it for granted and think you can earn it somehow. But instead, rejoice and rest in God's grace that he has shown for you for the sake of Jesus. Okay, let me finish with one last question. How are you going to respond to this loving kindness, this has said of the king, of King Jesus? Will you be like Mephibosheth and fall at the feet of the king in worship and receive his kindness? Or will you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and patience, not realizing that his kindness is meant to lead us towards repentance? If you read on, and I, invite, I encourage you to, chapter 10 shows us what happens when someone doesn't accept the kindness of the king. 
In chapter 10, David seeks to show kindness to someone else and they reject that kindness and you see what happens. So let's pray. Let's thank God for his grace to us. Father, we, like Mephibosheth said, we are, we are dead dogs. We are dead in our sin. We are your enemies. But you in your love and your grace have shown us kindness for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would not only receive that grace, but live in that grace all the days of our life, never seeking to earn your favor, but resting in your love and your grace to us, and that we would eat at your table in the kingdom of God always. Amen.